uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Romans 8. Romans 8 is where we will be this morning. There was a man who traded in precious stones and jewelry. He was an expert in his field, uh, a bit of a savant in finding kind of surprising hidden treasures amongst cheap knockoffs and lesser quality items. And one day he's perusing a table in an open air market and he comes across an item that causes him to catch his breath. He sees it and he's, oh, his, his fingers start tingling, his toes start tingling. Did the sellers realize what they have here on this table? I mean, this pearl would come at a high price. It was marked up heavily, as you would expect, with an item like this, a bead of this kind. But the value of this one far surpassed what they were asking. So the merchant, he puts it on layaway, and he goes, and he quickly arranges to liquidate all of his inventory so that he can come back and buy this one bead. It was worth it, this pearl of great price. On Tuesday, January 3rd, 1956, five missionaries landed on a small strip of land in the jungles of Ecuador. Their hearts were set on reaching this notoriously dangerous but unreached people group. They wanted to bring the message of Christ and his salvation to them. Now, they knew the dangers their wives uh, had discussed the possibility of becoming widows. For three months, these missionaries had regularly flown over the area, dropping gifts, shouting greetings uh, to the tribal people. And when they finally landed on that Tuesday, they built a hut and they waited for the tribe to come and find them. On Sunday, January 8th, they were due uh, to to radio in uh, and connect with the the people who sent them. And they're supposed to call at 4.30. And at that point, there was silence. All five of them were martyred uh, for the sake of Christ. Now, one of the men named Jim Elliott, before they had left, he was famous for saying, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He believed it was worth it. A fledgling Roman church is growing and learning what it means to follow the way of Jesus. They believe in Christ for salvation, and they're pursuing the holiness that he's called them to, but they're finding it difficult. The battle against sin in their own lives, the potential of persecution coming from the outside, you know, it stands before them, as does the call to to live and love sacrificially. Now, Paul writes to this church, and he tells them, he says, you are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided... You suffer with him in order that you may also be glorified with him. And the question before this Roman church is, you know, suffering? (laughs) Is it worth it? A church in Camarillo is growing in fellowship with one another and with God. Wants to grow in reaching out to our community and to our world. Now to follow Jesus in this day and age will come at a cost. To love others outside of these walls, that'll come at a cost. To be faithful to Christ in a fallen world of death and decay and personal loss, that will come at a cost. While the world sells us comfort and pleasure and safety, 
Well, Paul says to us that we are heirs of the king, provided we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. And the question before us is, suffering? Is it worth it? Are you in Romans chapter 8 yet? We are working through Paul's letter to the Roman church. And we're in the middle of this great chapter where Paul is unpacking what life looks like on this side of the cross. Okay, having received justification by faith alone. You know, we trust in Christ's atoning work on the cross for our sins. And when we receive that justification, well, then all these other gifts come along with it. What we've seen in this chapter, you know, are the benefits of our redemption, gifts like sanctification, the Holy Spirit, union with Christ, adoption, and glorification. But our passage this morning in this chapter specifically seems to be answering the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And Paul's resounding answer is absolutely. No question, no contest. He uses superlative language saying, man, our present struggle, it's not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. Now in saying that, he's making a value judgment. Okay? He says, I consider that it's no comparison. So our job this morning is we're going to dig into this passage. Our job is to try to grasp what it is that Paul sees and hopefully come to the place where we too can make the same value judgment. Where we also can say, yeah, I consider that it's no, no, no contest, no comparison. See, the goal is that we wouldn't just understand that Paul sees it this way, but that we too would come Well, to feel the weightiness of the glory that awaits. And that we would find this hope worthy of radical life change. So, our main point this morning is simple. Our main point is this. The difficult road of the Christian life is worth it. If you get one thing today, you leave out of here and that's all you remember, you've gotten it. Okay? The difficult road of the Christian life is worth it. So with that, let me read our passage and then we'll dive in. Romans chapter 8. We're looking at verses 18 to 25. Paul writes this. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we Wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let me pray. Father God, by the Spirit of Christ, You enabled the Apostle Paul to think these thoughts and to write down these words. 
I pray now in your mercy and grace that you would help us to live into the reality that these words are describing as never before. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Paul says, it's not worth comparing. Whatever sufferings we experience in our present circumstances, it's not worth comparing with what is still to come for the follower of Christ. Well, if we're going to see this and, and you know, see it as true and allow this truth to reshape us, we have to really think it through, do an honest assessment. Okay? We don't want to set up a straw man that's easily knocked down. No, we want to look reality in the face. So let's begin by considering our present suffering. Okay? Our present suffering. Paul is not sheepish about the reality of suffering in our world, nor does he try to downplay it. No. He says that all of creation is groaning under this suffering. Creation is in pain because of its futility and corruption. Now, like he's done many times in this letter before, Paul is looking back to the beginning, to the beginning, you know, the beginning of beginnings. The phrase, creation was subjected to futility, okay, that phrase, it's pointing to the curse of the ground, following Adam's sin in Genesis 3. It's there that Adam is told that the ground will no longer, you know, easily yield its produce. No, Adam is going to have to work, and in pain and by the sweat of his brow, that's how he's going to get his bread, his food. The blessed symbiotic relationship between humanity and the earth, well, it was broken. And the creation itself was put into what Paul calls bondage to corruption, or maybe your translation says bondage to decay. The world has been falling apart ever since. Because of Adam's sin, the created, the created order is fallen too. Now, we know this, right? We know this to be true. Tornadoes, hurricanes, fires, droughts, earthquakes, floods, devastation, decay. We know the world around us is broken. The created order itself is decaying. It's falling apart. As are our bodies. I mean, like the world around us, our bodies fall apart and wither and decay. We develop cancers and diseases and acne, even at 40. It blows my mind. We suffer the reality of, of a fallen world around us every day. So for Paul to name this, well, he's, he's naming the brokenness and the decay. He's staring it in the face. But for him to do so, to give voice to the suffering, this actually, for the time, was quite subversive. Because in doing so, he's contradicting the propaganda of the empire. So archaeologists, they, they've excavated and uncovered temples from this time when Paul was teaching in Rome that, that were, they were kind of temples to the Roman cult, the imperial cult. And inside these temples, there's images on the wall of the goddess Roma atop like these piles of, of spoil and splendor that they've achieved. And, and the idea is that you know, Caesar Augustus and, and Rome's military might has brought fertility and happiness to the world. And in one of these temples, you know, the, the messages on the wall, the propaganda, said that Augustus had already set the world free from decay. Because of Caesar, there was no more decay in the world. The world was fine. The empire was great. Caesar had ended suffering and brought about prosperity. So for Paul to say otherwise, that actually... The creation was still in bondage to decay. Well, this actually validated the experience of those on the margins and those outside of the prosperity that Rome had to offer. 
And in this small Roman church to which Paul is writing, these words, well, it would hit close to home because they know their own suffering, but it also give voice to the groans of those who did not reap the benefits of the Pax Romana, the empire. In our own time, we should likewise hear in the gospel a correction to those who pretend that everything's fine now. It's fine, it's fine, everything's fine. Any, any temptation to try to downplay or ignore the suffering in our world? No. We hear all around us the groans of those who know otherwise. Now, before we move to this second half of this evaluation, we, we need to get personal, okay? We will only get a hold of what Paul wants for us if this is real to us. Paul says we ourselves are groaning. Even though we have the Spirit, we still groan under the pain of a broken world. Suffering is real, and suffering is painful. Now, we can look at the natural catastrophe of tornadoes that ripped through Mississippi. We can look at the pain of, of the lives lost. We could look at the moral horror of what took place in Nashville this week. We can sympathize with, with just the, the grieving hearts left in the wake. We can groan with them, but we need not look outside these walls uh, to know that suffering's real. You know, if we were just to take a few minutes of peeling back the layers of our nice, shiny facades, we can find real suffering and real groaning in this room. Loss that took place this week for us. This present age is marked by suffering as a result of the fall. We live in a Genesis 3 world, and this causes us, alongside the whole creation, to groan. So we need to be honest. <laughs> do, do you groan? Do, are you groaning with creation? What pain, what suffering is the source of your groaning? And how do you make sense of it? How do you place that groaning, you know, in your understanding of the world? You need to look at it soberly. Paul says it's real. This present time has real suffering. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't try to, you know, shove it to the side. But he also doesn't stop there. The difficult road of the Christian life, it is difficult. But Paul says it's worth it. He says this present suffering is real, but... It's not worth comparing with future glory. And how could that be possible? <laughs> Let's turn there and see. Okay, Future glory, that's our next point. Both the groans of creation and the groans of God's people, they are directed at something. They long for something. They are the groans of those who have eager longing for a future reality to come to pass. Now this future reality that creation longs for, that we long for, Paul calls that glory, okay, glory. We eagerly long for glory. Now, just as the creation's bondage was tied to humanity's fall, so also will the liberty of creation be tied well, to God's new humanity. So Paul says in verse 19, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
He says in verse 21 that creation's hope is that it will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation is waiting, in a sense, for our glory to be revealed because its glory is tied to that. When Christ comes again and brings the new heavens and new earth and we are raised with resurrection bodies like that of Christ, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when all of that happens, creation will be brought along with us. There will be an element of continuity from this world into the next, into the new creation. Thus, the creation is longing for new creation, just as we are longing for resurrection bodies. Now, I want to be careful not to push too far past what the text says, you know, into wild speculation. But, based on this text, we can imagine together, maybe not authoritatively, but enthusiastically. <laughs> We're told in the text, in this age, creation is marked, well, by futility, bondage, corruption, death, and decay. And that's what we have right now. And what awaits us? Well, creation's freedom, glory, and new life. Now think about that for a minute as applied to the creation. Think about your favorite aspect of the created world around us. Think about it. Consider the majesty, the greatness of the oceans, or, or the mountains, or the valleys, or the forests, or the rivers, or so on. What's, what's your favorite? Is, is it sunsets? Is it, is it waves? Like, think about the, the created thing that, that brings you the most pleasure, or gives you the, the deepest sense or profoundest sense of, of power and majesty. Hold on to that, okay? Because each, each element of, of creation, it has a type of glory now, but also th there's a dark side to it. There's a brokenness to it. So we love the gentle breeze, but we know it can turn into hurricane-force winds. We love the playful waves, but we also know the chaos of a stormy sea and the fear that that evokes. We may imagine a peaceful forest glen, but there's also kind of that, you know, dark, evil forest that fairy tales are written about. Sin and death touch every part of the created order now. But just imagine what the world will be like when it is free to be itself. When the created order is set free from futility and corruption and decay. I mean, I, I don't have the words to depict, you know, how waves could be more gloriously waves. But they will be. I don't know how a mountain or a river will be more itself, you know, with more mountainous glory or more river-like glory, but it will. This is what Paul is saying. That is what the creation is groaning for. The best experience you have ever had with God's creation is but a taste of the glory that is to come. Whatever glimpse of transcendence and majesty you have sensed through creation that is a dim reflection of God's creative glory that will be fully revealed through the new creation. It's amazing to think about. But it's not just creation that groans for this. We, too, groan for this glory. We groan, we long eagerly for glorification when we will be perfected. Now, curiously... Paul calls this glory, in verse 23, he calls it adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, if you are here last week or you're familiar with Romans, maybe you're scratching your heads. You're thinking, didn't Paul already say that we were adopted? 
I mean, meaning that, that men and women both have all the rights of an adopted son and heir. I mean, that's what verses 14 to 17 were all about, that we are adopted as sons. So what does he mean that we still wait eagerly for adoption? Well, Paul seems to be saying there is yet an even deeper and richer child-father relationship to come when we are fully revealed as his children. That is, we have the Spirit working our adoption into us now, kind of from the inside out, but one day it will be completed all the way through such that we are fully revealed as God's sons in glory. Now, Paul calls this finalized adoption, the second phrase he says, it's the redemption of our bodies when we will be fully conformed to the image of his son. Now, this is so interesting because, again, in Romans well, 7 and 8, there is tons of language contrasting the sinful flesh with the spirit. You know, the sinful flesh, the spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh, you know, walk by the spirit, you know, over and over and over again, the, the flesh and the spirit. But with all of that language, Paul insists that God has a purpose for our bodies, okay? We are not trying to escape our bodies. No, we are longing for our bodies to be redeemed, to be set free, well, maybe from the sinful flesh, to be more fully a human body as it's supposed to be. Notice the progression of Paul's language in this chapter. It'll come up on the screen. Chapter 7, verse 24. Paul says, he cries out, you know, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Then chapter 8, verse 10, he says, the body is dead because of sin. Verse 11, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He goes on, verse 13, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then finally, in our passage, verse 23, we ourselves who have the spirit wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Do you see it? We have the status. We are adopted children. We have his spirit who's helping us to put to death the deeds of the body now, that is sin, and we will one day have our bodies totally redeemed and set free from sin by that same spirit. Finally, completely. Just as the mountain will become more gloriously mountainous, having been set free from sin, we will become more human that is, more like Jesus, the perfect man. Again, just like the mountains, it's, it's hard to imagine what we will be like, how that could be. I mean, what would sinless humanity be like? What will it be like not to have sinful desires in us? Desires like, you know, gluttony and pride and lust and jealousy I mean, these sinful desires seem so wrapped up in our human experience, it's hard to imagine or conceive of how we could be human without them. But we will. So Karis and I have a, a friend who comes around often who struggles with, with mental illness, mental health stuff. And we get these wild swings of, of you know, manic behavior and then severely depressive behavior. And every once in a while, Every once in a while, he comes by, and there's this moment of clarity, this moment of lucidity, and he's the greatest guy. And, and Karis is calm. She's like, man, it's so sad. You get a glimpse of what he could be like if he was set free, if he, if he was healthy. 
when I used to, to counsel parents of teenagers as, you know, working with youth and stuff and, and trying to, to just help their home, often I would sit across the table and hear these parents kind of grieving a little bit, and they're like, man, every once in a while we get this glimpse of how awesome our daughter could be if she wasn't so angry. You know, and there's this glimpse, this moment of, of, of glory, of what could be. Or we have friends in our community group, dear friends with parents or grandparents with dementia, struggling with Alzheimer's, and they say, man, every once in a while you get these moments of lucidity. It's like, oh, there you are. You know, oh, uh, if only we could have this forever. Friends, that's us. That's us right now. Every once in a while we display a glimpse of the glory that is to come. When Jesus is at work in us right now, we may get glimpses of of a piece of the glory that we will have fully in eternity. And when this glory arrives, well, you will become more human than you ever succeeded to be on earth. And simultaneously, you'll be shorn, you know, of all your vices and sinfulness and twisted desires. So dream with me for a second. What, what would you be like to be more you and yet sinless? What would your loved ones be like to be set free, to be fully themselves and yet sinless? Think about it. That's the potential glory that awaits us. Now notice in our passage how this happens how this this glory is achieved. We can see it in the slight shift in language in verses 18 and 19. Paul says in verse 18 that glory is to be revealed to us, you know, to the sons of God. Verse 19, he says creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Hold on. Verse 21, that the creation hopes for the glory of the children of God. What's going on? Is Is the glory revealed to us or is it our glory that's revealed. Well, the glory revealed to us will result in glory being revealed in us or through us. It's like a mirror. It gets reflected back to God. That is, seeing Christ's glory will result in our glorification. Beholding leads to becoming. Beholding leads to becoming. This is exactly what the Apostle John says in 1 John 3. He'll come up behind me. He says this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. So good, our adoption. Verse two, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Wow love that passage. Beholding leads to becoming. You want to be like Jesus? Look at him. Stare at him. Meditate on his glory and let it work its way into you. We shall be like him because we shall see him. The glory revealed to us will result in the glory being revealed through us. If you've never read uh, C.S. Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory, 
I commend it to you. I'm, I think you can probably find it online for free. Uh, if not, it's in a book also called The Weight of Glory. But in this essay, he ponders the implications of our, our glorious future. And he says, you know, because this is true, there's no ordinary people in the world. You don't interact with ordinary people. Everyone is an immortal. <laughs> there's no mere mor mortals. Okay, fantastic essay. Go read it. Um, but in a different book, in Mere Christianity, he writes something similar. And this quote kind of better fits our passage. But he connects it to how we reflect God's glory back to him. And he writes this. He says, God will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot imagine now. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that's what we're in for, nothing less. Our glory will be a form of God's glory reflected back to him. Now, are you beginning to see what, what Paul saw? Maybe to, to feel a bit of the worth, the weightiness of this glory. Our hope of glory can transform our experience of the present. Not by downplaying our current suffering, but by amplifying our future glory. The weightiness of the glory that awaits us. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, I mean, it's, it would be offensive if it were not <laughs> for the vision of glory. He says that his suffering seems to be a light and momentary affliction. Again, that, that would be insulting apart from a vision of glory. He writes, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, not to our suffering, but to the things that are unseen. Our hope of glory transforms our experience of the present. Again, not by downplaying our suffering, but by amplifying the weightiness of the glory that awaits us. It's not as if the suffering is less. No, it's real. It's that we long all the more for the good that's ahead. Friends, Jesus did not endure the cross by saying, ah, it's not that bad. I got this. No, no, no. It was horrible. We're going to rehearse it on Friday night. No, he endured the cross by looking at the joy set before him. This life that Christ calls us to, which will be marked by suffering, is worth it because of the weight of the glory that is held out in front of us. The difficult road of the Christian life is worth it. Do you believe that? Does the staggering worth of this hope catch your breath? When it does, it will make radical life change seem worth it. Maybe you need to pray that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to see this eternal weight, to feel the weightiness of this glory, that it might change you. The difficult road of the Christian life is worth it. Okay, that's our main point. I'm going to end with a bit of application. Okay, if we get this, if we grasp what Paul grasps, what difference will it make? Well, according to Paul, it's one word, hope. Okay, that's the application, hope. Uh, it's the end of our passage, and we'll end with this. The person who gets a hold of the worth of the glory that awaits us will respond with hope. 
Verse 24, Paul says, in this hope we were saved. He clarifies, now hope that's seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? He's saying hope is a forward orientation. It looks forward to what, what's not in front of us yet. So John Calvin helpfully kind of interacts with faith and hope. He says, faith believes God to be true. Hope awaits the time when this truth shall be manifested, when it will be made real. He says, faith believes that God is our Father. Hope anticipates that he will ever show himself to be a Father towards us. It's future-oriented, forward-oriented towards that which we don't yet see. So Paul then goes on to give us a wonderful definition of hope in verse 25. He says, if we hope for what we do not see, here's the definition, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. Now, the word for wait, it's, it's better than wait, okay? It's the same word used in verse 19 and used again in verse 23. It means eager expectation, waiting eagerly. So we could over-translate verse 19 to say the creation waits eagerly with eager longing. I read one that said it has eager expectation, expecting it, you know, eagerly. Paul's definition of hope is waiting eagerly with patience, or patiently, eagerly waiting. It's a little paradoxical. He says our waiting will be both full of eagerness and patience. Eagerness. We do not allow ourselves to be satisfied with the world and our lives as they are now. We will look forward to our glorious future and not live as if this is all there is. But patience. We remember that we are not in glorious freedom yet. We shouldn't expect or demand everything to be perfect now, trying to, to drag perfection into our present. It isn't here yet. We must wait for God's timing. Waiting eagerly means that, well, knowing what lies ahead, we'll strive after it. Knowing that our bodies of death will be redeemed, we therefore will put to death by the Spirit the deeds of the body. Knowing that we are destined for a land of love, we will begin living that future now. That was the end of that first John passage. He says, you know, we're going to be like him because we'll see him as he is. And then he follows up. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We go after it now because it's coming. So that's eagerness. Waiting patiently, it means that we know that we're ultimately anticipating a work of God. We don't get unduly frustrated with ourselves or others when our progress towards the future takes longer than we desire. The process and this life is hard and painful and a struggle and therefore requires patient endurance. We are to wait neither so eagerly that we lose our patience, nor so patiently that we lose our expectation, but eagerly and patiently together. So eagerness cries, how long, O Lord? And patience cries, into your hands I commit my spirit. The difficult road of the Christian life is worth it. And when we grasp that worth, our lives will be filled with eagerly expectant and patient 